We are here in WeWork Oldgate Tower for the second of our three-part blockchain special. We're going to talk about what is the consensus conference. It was happening last week and there was a lot of buzz about it if you're in the blockchain community, but if you're new to it, then you may have missed it entirely. Who does it matter to? Today's show, we've got some fantastic guests joining us. We have the returning Colin Platt. Colin, thank you for being with us. Thanks very much for having me again. We have Ajit Tripathi. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me again, Simon. We have the returning co-host and superstar that is Gela Boschkovitz. Gela, how are you? I'm fantastic, Simon. How are you? I am very, very well. And we are delighted to have Jeremy Miller join us. Jeremy, how are you, sir? I'm okay. Long-time fan, first-time participant. Excellent, excellent. All right, so we'll get a little bit more into who our guests are a little bit later. Um, and if you want to learn more about them, we'll cover that in the recap of the show. Um, but I guess, first up, we really want to talk about what is Consensus 2017. So tell me a little bit about Consensus 2017. I've been to this conference in New York a couple of times, but you, Ajit, you were there. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what was the conference, who was there? Yeah, so I'm, I've been a regular at Consensus, and it's a conference, it's a global blockchain community conference that's organized by Coindesk, which is uh, probably the leading publication in this space. Basically, a lot of, uh, you know, enterprise blockchain people, as well as people from the public uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain community show up. And then uh, quite a few topics, they cover, cover quite a few topics that are of interest to the community in particular. And this year's event was actually quite big. I mean, I think 2,000 odd people were there and quite a few major announcements were made, which uh, were all tremendously exciting, in fact. Excellent. So um, if I'm new to this blockchain space, should I be going to this conference? Like, what would I learn at that sort of thing? Colin? I mean, I, I guess it really depends on what your goal is. Um, a lot of people there are looking at this who are brand new into it, based in the New York area typically or, or nearby. Um, there's a lot of people that have been in this for a long time uh, from originally the cryptocurrency space and now increasingly from blockchain DLT without necessarily the cryptocurrency. I guess it depends. It's an expensive ticket to, to show up and you got to fly out to New York if you're not based there. Uh, I, I tend not to go, to be honest with you. Um, it's fantastic that they do it. It's great to kind of follow along to what's interesting coming out of it. At the end of the day, it's a networking event and there's lots going on here in London too. True that. Jeremy, you were there. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts from the, the kind of trend you've seen over these conferences over the last few years? Have you, have you got any thoughts on that? I think if you're going to go to one event in blockchain, it's the one to go to. It's by far and away the biggest and most comprehensive. Uh, one of the things that was quite intentional in this year's track was there was an afternoon track for each of the three major major blockchains, ledgers, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance had day one, Hyperledger had day two, and R3 had day three. And that was something that had been designed for many months into the program. Um, I think in terms of a soup to nuts combination of technical to high-level commercial, to sort of VC interest. It's it's about the most comprehensive one yeah. out there. It was about 2,700 people this year, up from 2,200 last year. So this is kind of the, the ground zero for and events go. It's, it's kind of the epicenter of, of, of what's going on. Well, it's got the reputation. The only reason I know of consensus is because I've got friends who are DLT crazy, and they want to go there. I mean, I, I understand it is a commercial networking sort of thing, but they found value in it from the beginning uh, in terms of being able to kind of geek out on the tech, to really talk tech, and I don't think you get a lot of that at, at most conferences. So in my understanding from the consensus version that I am, it's a it's a place for tech talk. And, and all the big announcements were timed around it, right? So the Rootstock announcement, the EA announcement, the Quorum announcement, all of those things were timed around consensus very deliberately. 
That's interesting. We'll, we'll come to those announcements a little bit later for listeners who are, who are curious. But I guess let's take a step back and, and just talk a little bit about, you mentioned Hyperledger, you mentioned uh, R3, and you mentioned uh, the Ethereum track. Can we separate those three? Because I still think that uh, a lot of uh, people in the, the financial services world are seeing Bitcoin versus blockchain or Bitcoin versus DLT as this binary, you know, there's, there's one or the other. But actually, it sounds to me, Jeremy, like what you're saying is there's this just Cambrian explosion of different technologies with those three being at the forefront from a, from a corporate's perspective. I mean, Colin, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a very good way to put it. I mean, there's a lot of people that originally came into this uh, looking at cryptocurrency and Bitcoin specifically as how we're going to get rid of banks, how we're going to completely change the economic model of the universe. And, you know, there's still people that firmly believe that. And, and I won't say whether I think that's a horrible idea or a good idea, but what a lot of people have kind of pulled out of this is, well, the technology is interesting to the extent that you can separate a cryptocurrency more than just Bitcoin. Obviously, Ethereum is growing in presence. Things like Ripple uh, and many other cryptocurrencies are growing in their importance and in their market cap. Uh, you can completely remove that, at least in theory, uh, to say there's some other interesting things we can do when we can align and come to the same conclusion about the state of a particular set of data. Uh, across multiple organizations who don't fully trust one another. And that's exactly where the likes of Hyperledger in all of its forms of its projects. Obviously, one thing to keep in mind about Hyperledger is it is not just like Ethereum. It's not a protocol. It's actually a larger entity that's put together to look at multiple protocols and how they can potentially speak with one another, but more than that, how they can develop. Yeah, so uh, I wrote an article for Coindesk at the end of last year, and I said that, you know, a lot of, there will be a lot of consolidation in the space starting this year, as in two years ago, everybody was writing their own blockchains. And uh, now more and more, at least in the enterprise space, we'll see three or four major platforms or ecosystems start to dominate. And this year, I think we've started to see that with the Ethereum, uh, R3, Skoda, Hyperledger Fabric, and a couple of other specialized protocols sort of start to take center stage and then uh, the rest of the community is sort of starting to focus more on building applications than on building underlying protocols. So if it's a natural monopoly um, or an oligopoly of sorts uh, in terms of platform, then what are the, what are the fundamental differences between the two and, and, or the three or the four in terms of protocol? What makes each one unique? Well, it's, it's not really a monopoly because these are all communities right? Open source communities well, let, that are let, building. I mean, oh. I get it's an open source community, but I mean, we're talking about, say, natural players, right? So it's an oligopoly it's, it's in the sense who rises to the top. It, 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 network effects. I mean, in economic theory, network effects are one form of a barrier to entry to competition. Mm -hmm. And network effects state that the value of the product increase with the number of the users of the product, right? Mm -hmm. And the classic example of this is Word. Word is useful as a word processor. It's more, it's much more useful if all of us use Word because then we can share files, right? And so, you know, in tech market theory, basically it goes like this: they with the most developers wins, right? Um, and so it's so so what we're seeing is a range of applications and developers. You know, there are people putting together their own blockchains, but there's a few platforms that just simply have a lot more traction today. Now. I take a slightly different view than Colin does on this um, and from two perspectives. One, I believe having a token uh, creates an incentive for the developer ecosystem to participate and contribute value back. Um, obviously, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem is doing particularly well at this. 
And two, I, we believe our view at my firm consensus is in the next five years, every major company will have a public blockchain requirement. And it will be very, very difficult for a technology like Hyperledger Fabric to ever create a public blockchain because of the crypto economics required to do so. And you know, companies today may not have those requirements, but it's very easy to imagine use cases that will. And I think as we see that happening, we're going to see the public blockchains today become increasingly powerful. So it really is a, is there a difference between the protocols that they're each adopting and what are the differentiators between and the advantages and the disadvantages between the, the well, different protocols? Well, so first inside of Hyperledger, you need to distinguish between Hyperledger Fabric, the IBM product and Hyperledger, the Linux Foundation group, right? And these are distinct and seemingly uh, at times conflicting concepts. Um, you know, and I think you can read about that discussion in plenty of places and probably something we should maybe stay away from in this discussion. Um, you know, our, our view in terms of Ethereum is it's distinctive in a, in a variety of ways. Uh, it's a it's a replicated state machine. It's a virtual machine based architecture. It's got one major simple abstraction, which is the smart contract. Um, it's fully decentralized, etc. So we believe that there is a the unique properties of Ethereum make it a, the most palatable and powerful technology available for both private and public applications. I mean. And I think here this this is um, our school, plug. Yeah, I was going to say, and here's a school of thought, tremendously well articulated, of one of those um, leading candidates to, to kind of take forward. But the fundamental tension, I guess, Colin, is that not all organisations have made that leap yet, of, of, because they they perceive whether it's right or wrong. There's a number of barriers to potentially working yeah. with tokens, to potentially adopting a truly public architecture, and and this is what's creating that tension. Is, is what are your thoughts on? So that? Simon, I think it depends on the time horizon, right? So if you look at R3's mm -hmm. Coda, they got rid of uh, the blockchain entirely because uh, that's a community of banks and they are trying to build something that's useful immediately. Whereas uh, Hyperledger have taken, uh, again, that's that's a community that sort of started with mainly with enterprise applications and they said, we don't need a token, we don't need, we probably have a blockchain, probably not. Now with Ethereum, I think uh, we're looking at something completely transformative because this is we're not taking a short horizon approach. We're not saying this needs to go live in two years or three years. This is uh, the the dream of Ethereum has always been the next generation internet, right? It's a it's a big vision, and uh, at some point these things will start to converge. But uh, I think it's easier to take something that's built to work in a trustless environment and then move it to a trusted environment in the enterprise, as opposed to taking something that's built for a trusted environment and then sort of turn it into the next internet. Yeah, and I think I'll just jump in there. I mean, I'm believe fundamentally in the idea that tokens are great in creating security in hostile environments. I've been a buyer of Ethereum since the pre-sale. People that know me know that I, I've been invested in that continually. I think ultimately it comes down to the question of this will be very expensive to ensure this trustless environment. Very expensive. Yes, hopefully it'll get cheaper than the current trajectory and hopefully it'll remain cheaper than the, the one Bitcoin's enforced. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of problems inside of corporations. There's a lot of problems between individuals that need to be solved potentially where a lighter version of security may be sufficient. Absolutely. And we don't need to throw all of those out to a public blockchain. That's not to say that at some level they won't connect. Personally, what I believe is we're going to use tokens a whole lot less as a currency, and it's going to become just that payment for security, which is a bit where Ripple's trying to take it directly. So um, can, can I unpick some of this? Because yeah. I think we've, we've, we've gone into the weeds um, quite Yeah, I kind of want to roll it back because it sounds like we're talking between 
there's an aspect of distributed ledger and then there's an aspect of blockchain. And I think tokens kind of redefine one or the other or they add to the definition when they're maybe we kind of roll it back. And what's the actual difference between a blockchain and a DLT? Oof, okay, so that's deeper than what's the difference between a, a token-based system and a non-token-based system. So um, we like to look at um, the difference between DLT and blockchain as one specific thing, and that's whether everybody can see the information. Um, we wrote a paper about this talking about channels, i.e. if you're familiar with how Slack works, you have a common channel where everybody can see everything that's going on inside your group, but then you have some of these private setups where you maybe only have a few people. To us, if you have that second ability, it's no longer a blockchain, it becomes a DLT. That is the specific thing that breaks those two into uh, separate parts. Now, within blockchains, you can have a public blockchain or permissionless blockchain. If you have that, you have to absolutely have to have a token, something to pay the system to enforce security. Mm -hmm. If you don't let anybody and their mother in, then you can have a permission system and you might not need a token. And very likely you don't absolutely need a token at all. And very likely, because you know who's in there, you can just enforce identities to kind of abstract that. Uh, if you're going to steal from me, I'm going to know who you are, and I can download this, and I can take that into a court of law. So I guess it's kind of the way we used to build things versus the way we might build things in future. The way we used to build things is we'd kind of know everyone and have uh, people that we're empowered to know everyone uh, to kind of be the middleman that says, I know everyone, I can make I can make sure this network's secure. That's, that's one school of thought. The new school of thought that came from the blockchain world was actually let's uh, let's make sure that nobody knows and nobody nobody knows anybody, but we'll use this monetary system of tokens or cryptocurrencies or you know, and there's differences between those two. But this token will secure that network in some way, or it will give me some utility in that network, and I'll, I'll want to use it. And then. What's happened since is there's kind of been an explosion of different ideas as people then kind of from the old world of financial services came along and said, well, we used to build things in a certain way. We see value in this blockchain idea, but why don't we change it? So it's kind of like depends where the project was born and who the parents of the project. It actually sounds more like it's a trust issue than anything else. I mean, when you're talking about trustless environment of exchange and tokenization is just a symbol, is another symbol for trust in some way, shape or form. Let's look at what blockchains really do, right? So it's a chain of blocks, and which is, uh, so you have uh, blocks of data connected with each other, and as this chain becomes longer, it becomes more and more expensive to modify the chain mm -hmm. because it's the nature of uh, how the cryptography works. And the blockchain is gives a particularly easy way of implementing de decentralized ledgers, and then there are it provides a very secure way of implementing DLT, but it's possible in theory to implement this DLT without blockchain. Right. So, so when we talk about Ethereum, I typically talk about five fundamental properties. Talk about having a cryptographic network, the ability to digitally sign every piece of data, every transaction, every movement across the system. Having a distributed ledger. So in Ethereum, the fundamental underlying data structure is a replicated key value st store, right? Um, so there is a distributed ledger in Ethereum. It is exactly what you'd expect. It looks like a key value database that you'd have, except for it's securely replicated across the network, right? Then we talk about the smart contract layer. So 
It's great that we can keep all of our data in synchronization on the public network every 14 seconds on private networks much faster than that. Um, but that's not very helpful if the business logic is different across the nodes. So smart contracts allow us to ensure that the business logic, that the different participants in the network are all the same. Then we get to tokenization, which is the idea that if I have secure shared data and a way of enforcing business rules across that secure shared data and a way of identifying everyone who's touching it, I can then abstract an asset into something that we'd call a digital token, a digitally native representation of an asset. And then finally, this comes back to how the heck are you going to interact with those, which in the case of Ethereum is through a wallet and through a client identity, right? So all of those applicate, all of those capabilities are applicable in a private network, just as, a, and many times more applicable sometimes, because public networks today, you know, if, especially in the core cryptocurrency space, are, uh, are somewhat limited in their requirements, right? It's a fairly straightforward use case. Some of the more modern tokens are more complicated, but all five of those capabilities are, are applicable inside the firewall of large enterprises. Well, so if you're if you're taking that and you're put, applying it to a public blockchain, and you're talking about the permissions that are sort of managed at every node, so each party has those same permissions, or they have the same uh, compliance mandates or parameters around that. Do we even talk about dynamic permissions around that? Do we even talk about the changing compliance or changing requirements for each of those transactions to be consented to that everyone has the same parameters? We, and we talk about permissioning to every major client we have. Um, and we look at permissioning very, very closely at many of our public chain applications too. But isn't isn't that the, isn't that fundamentally the difference between how you manage that publicly and how you manage that privately? It's a level of level or degree uh, I, of permission I, I, capability. I have said fairly frequently, and this is something that's been picked up elsewhere, that in five years' time there won't be a difference between public and private blockchains. Um, there isn't a difference between public HTTP and private HTTP. You just have a firewall. Um, and what I believe that will happen, at least in the Ethereum space and with the EEA, we're working very hard to achieve, is that Ethereum will have a superset of capabilities that will be able to imply permissioning, access control, what have you, across public and private networks. And at that point, the difference between a public network and a private network will be a router and a firewall. Yeah, so again, the biggest uh, reason people are, you know, certain consortia have tried to move away from blockchains is because of the need for confidentiality and privacy. But if you look at what JP Morgan are doing with Quorum uh, and Zcash. We'll come back to this uh, later. But yes, I think that's a a classic example of uh, the JP Morgan who famously and publicly left uh, the R3 consortium have now said, actually, we can use Quorum, which is an offshoot of Ethereum. And and you made a point earlier, Rajit, which I want to echo, which is uh, that you see convergence coming here, that the, the open source space, people in the uh, kind of corporate space are now walking towards some of these open source ideas that they initially kind of closed their minds to and closed their eyes to and said, actually, this doesn't work. Did, Colin, do you disagree? I, I slightly disagree. I mean, I absolutely appreciate that they, they have gone in and have been putting money into R&D and open source. I think that's fantastic in all large enterprises that benefit uh, directly or indirectly from open source, not just in the blockchain world, but outside of that are, are now putting back into it, which I know coming from an enterprise is a very difficult thing to do. Um, but let's also not forget the fact that JP Morgan is also a large investor in digital asset, which is not currently a uh, producer of an open source or user of an open source uh, ledger, at least in what they've announced. I, I think that they're they're making investment choices based on what they see ROI on. And uh, for one reason or another, they didn't feel it was right to invest further into R3. And that I'm sure was made 
based more on a return on investment than it was on a particular commitment to open source? Well, I guess there were two technical choices in front of people, right? Do you get the properties of confidentiality and privacy by throwing away the blockchain and then working around the properties of that blockchain brings? Or do you use the properties of the blockchain then add on confidentiality and privacy using other crypto protocols? And I think JP Morgan have gone the way of, let's use a blockchain, but then let's add the uh, interesting crypto to make it, uh, to still provide confidentiality and privacy. And that's the direction of the EEA as well. Right. And what we're finding is that people have then looked at this um, box of Lego bricks that is the whole blockchain crypto space and just having, there's lots of different opinions emerging. But um, I think Ajit's point, again, deserves echoing that there is, there does appear to be this this convergence now happening. But then that means if I'm in a big company, what should I be looking at? Because there's, there's at least three, maybe five different directions. There's there's the Ripple space for payments. There's Corda happening in, from in financial services. There's Hyperledger from the corporate side. There's the Enterprise Ethereum alliance where would i where would i start what's the best way to get started listen to your developers that's my take on it right because if you look at apple i mean everybody uses an iphone today because that's got the biggest developer ecosystem and then there was a time when microsoft was winning and they had the biggest developer ecosystem so listen to your developers and you can pick like the three or four technologies that are probably most relevant to you so i have a question in relation to that so if he who has the most technologists or most developers wins how does that actually apply to any business case internally? So if you're selling the idea of using DLT or blockchain uh, across an enterprise, across a, a very conservative institution, why would I listen to developers that I basically have put at a distance? How do I start to sell a business case for so, this? So let me give you an example. Our uh, uh, Ajit's got the Infura sticker on there. Infura last week surpassed 600 million, maybe 700 million transactions a day on the public network as a, as a protocol router and endpoint. That's pretty useful if you're building, say, a trading system, right? To have something that's in production, that processing, can scale, that can that's do, processing yeah. almost a billion transactions a day, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, so there is a huge return between leveraging technologies that have a really broad developer ecosystem. Um, and so I fundamentally believe that things like Quorum are sort of an interesting hybrid for the future, where you have a group adding capabilities on top of an open source code base. The question is, how do we create interoperability and standards if we're doing that? And that's the whole point of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, at least in the community I'm a part of. So that, I mean, that does beg the question, though, if you're taking it from a business perspective and you're trying to sell this in terms of how do we actually throw money at it from, from a, a, a bank perspective, where do we start applying it? Um, what's the best use case? What sort of teams and resources are we going to need? Why should we trust open source, especially when we're looking at a trustless environment for exchange? And where do I even begin to articulate that need or articulate the business case for it internally? To be honest, I think that's the bigger challenge. So let's look at what happened with Linux, right? So Linux is an open source operating system, but at the end of the day, you have a few credible vendors like Red Hat and Suzy and so on that have provided robust enterprise-grade solutions to businesses built on top of an open-source platform. And that's exactly what's going to happen with some of the open-source communities that are developing these blockchains. So, for example, Hyperledger is a big community. And Hyperledger Fabric is extensively supported by IBM's tools. That's a great example. So with Ethereum, also, we'll see large enterprises start to support our deployment-ready ecosystems and widgets that you can deploy in applications, whether those are widgets for identity, those are widgets 
widgets for, you know, uh, like crypto tools and widgets for monitoring and so on and so forth. So you don't want to build everything yourself. The time for banks to build everything on their own, uh, what, 10 years ago when and, I used and to that, work And them, that was right? one of the key reasons why JP Morgan open sourced Quorum. Exactly. That, you know, is, is to build a community around it, right? I mean, JP Morgan is not in the database business. They're in the investment banking and commercial banking business. Um, and that, you know, and they've been on the record of of, of, of explaining this. So I, I just want to um, really kind of echo this point that you made there about banks being in the business of doing everything themselves. Because for about 10 years now, maybe 12 years, banks have been considering moving to the cloud. And they, they haven't successfully really done that. They've done it around the edges and they've done it in bits. But it was kind of always a bridge too far, getting out of their own technology into something else. But it seems to me like decentralization is the step after the cloud, right? It's, it's kind of now you're moving from not having anything on your premises and having this private cloud or public cloud that's run by somebody else that you know to a network that might not be run by somebody you know. Now, both of those may be highly secure and more, um, more cost efficient than your existing infrastructure. But how do you overcome that psychological barrier? And why has financial services embraced this so much? I think it's more than just a psychological barrier. Banks are built specifically to mitigate risk. And even by doing something which has been established in every other industry of moving infrastructure to the cloud, uh, it's better, it's more secure, it's cheaper. Uh, banks have a hard time doing it. And the question is why? Well, we have people who are getting to the end of their, their career cycle and they're ready just to say, look, I'm going to ride this out for the next five years. I don't care what happens after this. Personally, I think it's going to be much easier for new upstart banks to come in and be completely on the cloud. And Simon, you work with these guys uh, day in and day out on, on fintech who've come in and said, we're going to build a new bank. They don't ever think about setting up a mainframe other than maybe to do a POC from time to time. So that kind of brings me to, to a point I was I was really hoping that we'd, we'd get to. And I think you're, you're kind of nudging us there, which is, does this then mean that most of the opportunity in this um, blockchain DLT space is actually not for incumbents and it's for people building new things or, or other opportunities for incumbents? Uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think it's uh, depending on who you are in the value chain, you can apply uh, or deploy uh, DLT differently to your advantage. I think it's important to pick the right use cases, make sure you have thought through how you're going to build uh, your network. And I'll, I'll emphasize the term network that Jeremy used earlier. How you're going to build a solution very, very quickly, what uh, I think Adam Ledwin of Chain called the minimum viable ecosystem, and then expand that in circles and build a network where you have an advantage, right? So whether you are a big firm like JP Morgan or whether you're a small venture, it's really important to think through what's the target network that you're trying to build, business network, and what your role in that will be and what you will get paid for. Okay, can I, can I push you on that one? For a large enterprise like a JP Morgan or uh, let's pick another one, Microsoft, what is the key advantage of a public blockchain? Well, a large developer ecosystem that's heavily incentivized. More so than existing technologies they already run. Sure. I mean, it's, it's just it's a, new, it's a new way of incentivizing developers. Um, almost everyone who builds an Ethereum-based product holds Ether. Now, Colin, do you remember Microsoft Network, MSN? I do indeed. Right? And do you remember Google? So tell me which firm wants to be cut out of the next internet. Okay, right? fine. But my question still stands. Why DLT? Let's look at it this way, right? The DLT is going to happen. 
and DLT will be deployed and used by businesses, business networks with or without any of these entities. So it's in the best interest of these firms to participate in that ecosystem. I mean, in one of our decks, we have is blockchain the killer app for cloud for banks, right? So to the point, it's been really hard for the large cloud players to sell in volume into the banks. The barriers to that are several, including the fact that the underlying software was not designed to run in the cloud, right? And all of a sudden, they have this thing that's the hottest thing in the world to sell to banks. It's called blockchain, right? Or DLT or Ethereum or whatever you want to call it. And so they can go, they now have an, a, a classic door opener play to convert it, right? And, you know, I've run the numbers on this for some large cloud vendors. It's not about the blockchain. It's about the cloud drag. And the cloud drag is you get BI, you get data warehousing, you get the file storage. And so as a, as a killer app, as a door opener to get cloud into a large conservative bank, it's, it's sort of a once in a generation opportunity. And they can understand it because it's talking about assets and contracts and it feels like something that should be in their wheelhouse on and, the, the and business And they don't have side. anything installed yet. And so can we talk a little bit about um, some successful use cases? Because use cases always make this stuff real. Um, and give me a use case in the open public permissionless space versus something that may be more closed. Who wants to lead on that? Uncentral money to buy drugs with. Uh, <laughs> uh, other use cases? That use case seems to have seems to be stalling out a bit. On on the public chain, I think we're gonna start by seeing attestations being a very critical part because it's something that has very low transfer risk but very high emphasis on authenticity. So I think we're gonna start to see things, diplomas, um, you know, MIT already has a program to put diplomas on the blockchain. Diplomas are faked a lot of times, blockchain's a fairly low risk bit. Um, as a uh, but the number one use case of, uh, of argument of blockchain today is crowdfunding, right? I mean, token launches are going very, very well from the perspective of the token issuances. I know we've got some questions on there to cover, yeah. but that's a, that's a public chain use case that's going that's going extremely strongly so right now. Are we talking, I'm just curious, so we're talking more around um, provenance on certain things. So if you're talking attestations, uh, you're talking provenance for uh, some sort of hard asset or some sort yeah. of transferable asset, just I call it smart contract exchange. Really, it's just very clear and open. You can, you can uh, attest that this is a real thing, that this is the actual real asset value, and you can then transfer the ownership or liability of that value to somebody else in the public chain. I think we're we're quite a distance away. Well, again, for tokens, we're already doing that, right? Right, but so, but I mean, if you take the token and you sort of relay that, or you take that asset and relay it to what most people who are not in blockchain understand, traditional banking, I mean, trade finance, custody, and supply chain very obvious sort of use cases. What else, though, is there that, that actually transcends that, that could actually tip the bank into being pulled into doing a blockchain project that then can actually be so, pulled into being so on the cloud? There, there, are, there are lots of examples of banking projects that are multi-bank but not public, right? And so we make, we make this absolute distinction between public chain and inside the firewall, right? And that's not the reality of what people are building. The reality of what people are building are things that go across, that are things that, that are multi-participant, but are private and permissioned. And this is going back to my prior statement, is why I think in three to five years, there won't be a difference between the public and private protocols. There'll just be firewalls and routers. Because that's the way it looks already, right? You have JP Morgan with Quorum, and you have multiple banks running Quorum, and you have multiple networks getting set up that have multiple banks in, in it running over the public internet, but over VPNs, right? Well, hold on. What's the distinction between that and a public network again? A firewall? Yeah, but remember, this is where we started the whole thing from, which was how do we build an internet of value where we can send something valuable without it being copied? 
That was the dream of Bitcoin. And I guess what we're seeing then is the blurring of those lines and, and kind of the, the gray area in the middle being where the action is. And and uh, Jeremy, you mentioned, uh, so we've got a couple of use cases there. We've got the, the provenance, the authentication being one that's, that's almost the no-brainer. And Which if is that's, easy on public chain because it works in a trustless environment. Yeah. And, and then we've got the, the crowdfunding piece. And uh, we did something on the FinTech Insider News show that, uh, this past Monday that uh, was basically talking about the, the platform Cedars uh, has around two. $270 million of liquidity on that platform. If you compare the, all the token sales liquidity that's out there, they dwarf that amount. And the crypto asset space dwarfs it by, by 100x, if not 1,000x. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal how much uh, capital is being raised uh, from, from an equity crowdfunding, or not an equity crowdfunding, a token crowdfunding perspective. It's a really interesting thing. And we'll come on to that towards the end of the show. Right now, unfortunately, I do need to take an ad break. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Alrighty, thank you very much to our sponsors, and we are back here in the room, and uh, we've got a couple of headlines to talk through today. Uh, headlines coming out of the consensus conference that we mentioned earlier in the show, and the first one here is uh, a token sale by an organization called Kick Messenger, K-I-K Messenger. So these guys are a little bit like WhatsApp, I guess. Colin, do you, do you know what's going on here? Yeah, I, I have to say, admittedly, I'd never heard of Kick before they announced this at Consensus last week, perhaps because I'm not 16 years old and I'm I'm still only using WhatsApp. I'm not cool enough. So messaging app out of Canada with about 300 million users, which is not nothing, um, but it's definitely lagging behind some of the bigger things like uh, WhatsApp, for example, uh, has raised over $120 million to date with the last funding round raising valuations at a billion dollars. Really interesting to see them put out a cryptocurrency, but I guess uh, when you do some research on them, not that surprising considering they're backed by some heavyweights in the DLT space, including Adam Litwin of Chain.com and uh, USV, Fred Wilson, um, who famously put out the FAT protocols. Maybe they're trying to cash in on the idea of FAT protocols. Maybe they're trying to cash in on ICO and initial coin offering hype. Uh, I don't know if they're really doing something that's innovative or if they're just trying to do something to capture attention to catch up with the likes of a WhatsApp or a Telegram or somebody else. I'm skeptical. It would not make me, and I'm kind of a blockchain nerd, it would not make me use this thing. Well, I mean, if we look at how gamers behave closely, right, um, then it's quite nice for gamers to have goodies to exchange with each other. 
And a lot of gamers games use these this type of concept like Candy Crush and so on, where you can exchange tokens or goodies that value that have value within that community. And that's sort of the same concept behind crypto communities. So to me, it's a natural extension. But it? do you really need a decentralized ledger to do that? Or could you just do that like in all these gaming communities where they have centralized tokens? Second Life was famous for this. I think it's a question of how you want to extend that ecosystem, right? If you're going to keep just one game and one app and exchange tokens within that, that's fine. But if you want to make those tokens exchangeable with another network, then probably DLT is or blockchain is sort of uh, interesting there. It's interesting, Jeremy was talking earlier about how the network with the most developers wins. It was Microsoft, it was Google, now it now it may be this incentivization model. Kick Messenger, again, as 300 million users, as you say, Colin, um, has really started to pivot away from this idea of the, the only way to do a messaging platform is to centralize, and they're really starting to look at how do you incentivize people in a different way but it, it really challenges that model but i don't know that as you say that there's a need to move away from the centralized model so much on, on this one but it's going to be interesting because if people do start to get involved because they believe these tokens are going to increase in value and they can do interesting things with this platform uh, and they can build extensions to it it becomes like a signal or a telegram on steroids right like the developer's choice bit, bit like baseball cards and postage stamps that kids play with all the time except these are digital and these are people who can do a lot more with those things than uh, they, they can develop and they can use them in that ecosystem. But let's also consider the models that happen in China around Alipay. I mean, they have a messaging app and a centralized payment system inside, and it's massively popular. Um, I, I'm aware of a few different social messaging apps where they've tried to put Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency payments in, and ultimately they found that nobody was using them. The question is really, other than maybe bringing more developers in and incentivizing them, which hopefully that works for them, is this really going to bring more people in if you can do payments? Is that really that useful? Do you have a good use case? Will somebody develop a good use case? I'm not sure. Time will tell. Alrighty, next story up, Ajit. Um, Zcash and JP Morgan are formally partnering. Uh, what is Zcash and why would JP Morgan want to partner with them? Yeah, let's let's go back in history a little bit, Simon. So once upon a time, there was Bitcoin and still Bitcoin, right? The, the challenge with Bitcoin is that every node, every full node has the copy of all the transactions that have ever happened, right? Now, that doesn't really work in institutional financial markets because if let's say UBS and Goldman are trading with each other and they can see each other's transactions or if more importantly if other parties can see their transactions then they can trade against them right so I, I don't want my counterparty to see all my transactions that I'm engaging in with other counterparties so that's that's a big no-no in all sorts of financial markets so Confidentiality and privacy are absolutely essential properties of a financial network. And uh, different parties have been trying to solve that problem differently. Uh, there is Blockstream's confidential transactions that Chain also use. There is, uh, you know, this uh, R3's Corda approach, which essentially gets rid of the blockchain and shares transaction information only between parties to a contract. And and what, what Zcash have done in recent years is they have come up with this new technology called zero-knowledge proofs, which is still a field of mathematical and computer science research, which allows you to prove or provide uh, the proof of validity of certain statements without actually revealing any information inherent in those statements. So, for example, I can provide an evidence that a proof that I actually have these bitcoins without actually you know revealing too much of the transaction information or uh, revealing the entire uh, UTXO set, as we call in Bitcoin. So what JP Morgan are doing is, is somewhat experimental because this technology is still a little bit ahead of time and there is still some performance issues and other 
other things to be ironed out. But what they're fundamentally saying is if we were to keep the essential properties of the blockchain and use a blockchain underneath the transactions for its confidence, you know, for its security, resilience and other properties, then how do we still preserve confidentiality and privacy of transactions? And and that's where JP Morgan have done this really exciting piece of work with uh, Zcash. Uh, to use Zcash's technology on uh, and see how that might play out in inst- institutional financial markets. Look, I think it's incredibly interesting that they're investing in that technology because it's useful outside of a blockchain world as well. I'm not sure if they're going to use this in a public blockchain. It was really interesting to see the the day that that announcement came out, Zcash, the currency, uh, went up something like 125% on the announcement. A lot of people are speculating that JP Morgan could actually use this. I hate to break it to you, they probably won't. But it, it is really interesting. I, I know that uh, Jeremy said something earlier about what's the difference between uh, a public blockchain and a private blockchain. Well, it's a firewall. I, I think it's slightly deeper in that. A lot of the really cool stuff that's come out of Zcash could be compromised. I, this is something that Peter Todd came out very specifically and said. Uh, it's really cool technology, and it's great that they're spending R&D money to go out and look at this. But at the end of the day, is this something that's ready to go into production? Probably not. This is an R&D play. This is not a business play. Uh, and I agree with that. So when R3 wrote their uh, you know, uh, Coda white paper, they also mentioned uh, ZK Snarks and Zero Knowledge Proof Technology in, in that paper. And this is a field of research. It's a little bit early days. But the fact that you know a big bank is looking at cutting edge crypto, I mean, when has that happened in the past? Well, I mean, come on, let's look at digital asset. So their CTO wrote the first implementation of ZK Snarks. It's entirely possible that we're seeing the beginnings of the conversion of the um, public blockchain space and the private blockchain space. And this is something that Jeremy again said earlier in the, in the uh, podcast, that this is an interesting signal as to financial services starting to really understand that the Something that was private just means it's inside the firewall doesn't necessarily mean it can't talk to the public. It just means it changes how you talk to the public. Whereas we saw it as very binary before. It was DLT versus blockchain. And now we're seeing the convergence of those two. DLT and blockchain. Oh, look at that in perfect harmony. (laughs) So really interesting point was uh, this Bank of Canada news about DLT not replacing central bank interpayments. Um, Ajit, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I mean, I I read through the CoinDesk article that uh, described Bank of Canada's decision. And I I think uh, they're right in saying that none of the technologies, right, whether it's uh, R3 Skoda or... I mean, Fabric or I would say Ethereum at this point is really ready to support a a mission-critical central bank payment system. Now, that said, I think the technology is evolving really, really quickly. And maybe in two years' time, uh, they will need to look at this decision and say, hold on, we probably might have missed a trick there. Because, see, I did a, uh, we did a, PwC did a project with Bank of England last year, which I was part of. And we looked at uh, DLT primarily from the point of view of resilience and cybersecurity. So, is it a less efficient, is, 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 is a decentralized system typically less efficient than a centralized system? Potentially, but does it provide more resilience in terms of you know automated failover and recovery and more cybersecurity in that you have to hack multiple nodes before you can actually change the the data that, or the, the view of uh, the participants? Yes. So I, I think uh, they might be right from an efficiency perspective and then in saying that none of the technologies is really ready for the purpose. But I think uh, they'll probably look back in a, in a year or two and say, well, hold on, maybe we should take a different approach. 
Do you think this is a question on central banks trying to fit a square block in a round hole, talking about decentralized models? No, not 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 really at all. If you look at some of the research that Bank of England have published, right, their staff working papers and so on, then it's not necessarily, when we think of central bank digital currency, we don't necessarily have to think of every person on the street using a, a crypto token on a blockchain or a DLT, right? It's It can also be a, a limited use currency that's used by clearing banks and to give more access to clearing banks which, uh, which process interbank uh, payments and so on. So depending on the state of the economy and depending on the objectives of the central bank around, first of all, resilience and cybersecurity, but also in terms of making the, the payment system more fair and open, uh, DLT has valid applications. So I'm not aware of this uh, specific strategic obje- objectives of the central bank involved here, but uh, I-, I think that's one view which is valid at this time, but won't be valid in two years' time. It was really interesting. I was in a conference at the London School of Economics last week, and uh, there was somebody there from the ECB who had been very familiar with this and said uh, a lot of it, in his opinion, was was about the costs. And uh, the ECB is doing reviews on DLT systems and will make their own decision on whether this is applicable or not in the next few months. Do you think it's a technology question? Famously, they went with R3 Cortas. Would another technology that's decentralized work better? I, I don't think that's uh, the best way to think about it. I think, uh, as I said, I, you know, Corda just came out in September. And I mean, Ethereum is still uh, quite extensively used in public networks and still needs to find its enterprise avatar, so to speak. But the, the real question is, what are the strategic objectives that the central bank is looking at? What's their economic agenda and what's their overall settlement finality framework, for example, and what sort of uh, access they want for clearing banks to the central bank's payment system. So unless you, once you've thought through those things and the non-functional side, so cybersecurity and resilience, it's much easier to make a decision on whether to wait for DLT because you're right. I mean, you can't deploy a DLT today in a central bank infrastructure, but uh, the, the, the choices between uh, waiting a couple of years or making a decision that it's not ready, so we're going to do something else. Is it possible the train's going to leave the station before some of these people make up their minds? I think, uh, you know, I was at a panel in, uh, in, in, in Manchester uh, a couple of weeks ago, and one thing we realized that is that uh, countries and jurisdictions where there is a lot less legacy infrastructure will move fast, will move faster. So countries like Barbados and you know Senegal will probably deploy central bank digital currency infrastructure sooner. And then some of the OECD countries where there's a lot more risk, uh, there's a lot more to lose will come uh, once this technology has proven itself. So here's to hoping for the, the central bank of Antarctica. You see, Colin, you might have seen this interesting post from Balaji of 21, uh, one of the early Bitcoin entrepreneurs, and uh, Naval Ravikant, who is a, he's quite a well-known name in, in, in the Silicon Valley and blockchain circles, about uh, tokens and how the tokens being used on public blockchain networks will change how venture capital is done and how they are similar to API keys and should be treated as an innovation that could make fundamental difference to quite a few sectors of the economy. Yeah, so this was a really interesting post that he put out uh, the other day. Um, so really notable about Balaji's is in addition to running his own company, he's also um, one of the principals at uh, Andreessen Horowitz, a- A16Z, A16Z if you're from where I'm from. Um, famously for a long time, they were really pro-Bitcoin and kind of dismissed everything else in the blockchain cryptocurrency space. It's interesting to see their their massive U-turn on this, and I think it's very positive for the 
for the community to acknowledge that there is now another big, high-powered, um, forward-looking VC that's kind of caught on with us. Uh, don't you think this is a bit like the 1920s when we said, look, you know, people were trying to sell stocks through radio and saying, look, the technology is now different. And then during the dot-com era, when people said, look, it's the dot-coms and the internet is going to change everything. And this time it's different. So this time it's with different with tokens, isn't it? This time it's always different. Um, uh, there's some really good things about tokens and there's some really bad things about tokens. And, and likewise, there's some very good tokens out there. Um, but there's some really shit tokens. Let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, people are going out raising money for absolute crap. Um, and they're just trying to fuck over investors. Are you going to give us some examples of absolute? That I will not. Um, but, but I think that there, if you if you spend any time looking at this, you'll see people that are really just in there um, trying to push crazy ideas that would never get funding from a proper just VC. raising money on the basis of a simple white paper. Exactly. Or even worse, not even coming up with a white paper. And there was, there was a guy um, that, that famous Josh Cincinnati put out uh, something. He called it straight up Ponzi ICO. Uh, or Ponzi CEO, I think. And uh, I think he raised $2,000 or something. And it, the whole thing was a, a tongue-in-cheek joke. But people pay into it. And there's probably people out there that don't know any better and would dump their money into whatever shit comes across in order to try to make a 1,000x or whatever. And now on the positive side of this, right? So I, over the last year, I saw a lot of legit and really powerful blockchain ventures struggle to raise funding because, as you said, a lot of VCs had uh, spent a lot of money on Bitcoin and then they weren't ready to invest in anything else. But uh, isn't this a great way for some of the blockchain startups who have longer term projects that are beyond time, the VC's risk and time horizon appetite to essentially raise capital for really exciting and interesting projects as well? I think it is. I mean, there's there's some stuff out there where we're able to really align incentives between the consumers and the producers of something. And this is one of the few technologies where we really be able to bring those together very, very tightly. And there will be some very good things. And it could, maybe it's 1920s, but maybe it's also the 1990s, where ultimately we're going to develop the things that are the Amazons, the Googles, and whatever else out of this. But at the same time, we're going to get a lot of the pets.com as well. Yeah. So what do you have to say about this argument that, uh, you know, app coins are essentially API keys and they're not really securities or anything of value? I don't know that I completely buy that. There's probably some out there that are able to do it, but a lot of the a lot of these ICOs have also gone out and said, "Look, we are straight up securities. We're going to register Reg S, Reg D in the U.S. to be securities." Uh, we'll see. Lawyers are much smarter than me on these yeah, particular points. Yeah, I quite. We'll I see. remember that FinCEN ruled in Ripple's case that the Ripple token was not exactly an app token; it was exchangeable for value or something like that. And and then they essentially uh, penalized Ripple for not being compliant with KYC norms. So this argument that app tokens are solely API keys and not valuable you know, assets or money has not really always held. And, you know, we would like to sell the world on that uh, we don't have to be regulated. It's much cheaper. It's, oh, a, it's who much does better want to be regulated? Right? No one, right? <laughs> um, FinCEN was, was a really telling thing on that. Um, I know that Coinbase and Consensus put out a, an interesting paper talking about some of the legal aspects around a Howey test, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is the U.S. Um, legal test of whether something's a security or not. Not only is it things like, are you investing money, um, but it's, do you expect to make a return out of these things? I think when we really get down to it, a lot of people are investing into ICOs in order to make money and a lot of money. If it's definitely an expectation history. of return or increase in value from what the hobby test calls the 
uh, the predominantly the effort of others. Although you look, none of us is a lawyer in this room, so we got to be, you know, stay out of that. But at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, I would be surprised if a lot of people are, were investing in this space solely because to gain access to applications. I don't think a lot of people look at this as a charity, do they? <laughs> I wouldn't imagine that uh, cryptocurrencies were a charity instrument. So, I mean, we'll see what this world has has to, to take up in cryptocurrencies and ICOs. Um, I think it's it's very exciting. But really, if you're going to go out and you're going to issue an ICO as far as raising money, uh, definitely get a good lawyer, probably set up in Singapore, Switzerland, or someplace that's been more uh, friendly to these. But at, at, at the same time, don't do this to try to avoid uh, regulations. Unless you know what you're doing. Definitely get a good lawyer because, you know, legal advice is not there just to protect investors. It's also there to protect the people who are raising the investment when things or when and if things do go wrong. With that, uh, we've got to thank our guests today. Where can people find out more about you? So Colin Platt of Deepactum. You can find out more about me on Deepactum.com or on Twitter at at Colin G. Platt. Um, I like to, to argue with Ajit there, and he'll tell you all about his Twitter account. Yeah, hi, Ajit Tripathi. My Twitter ID is Triptananda. It's hard to spell, T-R-I-P-T-A-T-A-N-A-N-D-A. And uh, if you want to know more about the work we've been doing at PwC in the blockchain space, just Google PwC and blockchain. Alrighty. Well, the guests have run riot today asking each other questions and we absolutely encourage and love that here on Fintech Insider. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends and colleagues to listen too. We'll have more insight shows coming soon. Check out 11fs.com if you want to learn more about the team who bring you the show every week. Thank you.